the main objective and goal that the author of Hebrews had in his mind when he wrote these words was to encourage and to exhort a group of first century Hebrew Christians, it's a mouthful, right? Not to go back from their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ into the Old Testament system of the rituals and, and, and sacrifices and laws uh, of the uh, Judaic system. And that was what was happening. Many of them were facing pressures from their families, pressures from society, pressures in Israel. And they were giving in to that pressure and they were mixing their faith with Christ into old covenant things and going back to what God had saved them out of. And so the writer of Hebrews wrote this letter in order to encourage them not to do that and to argue towards them that Jesus is enough and that there's no need to go back to anything uh, in that of the old. And so the argument that he's making and the case that he is building is that he is piece by piece taking every part of what made up the old covenant system and then he's holding it next to Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of those old things, and showing how Jesus is superior, or Jesus is sufficient, and that in him we have the substance, therefore there's no need to go back into the shadow of what the Old Testament thing represented. Now, in chapter 5, which we were looking at, actually it started in chapter 4, um, right around verse 14, he started on a new theme. He started talking about the priesthood. And that was a big deal in the Old Covenant. I mean, everything was done by the mediation of a priest. And so that would be an important element in their minds concerning their connection to God. And what the author is doing now in this large chunk of the book, all the way from chapter 4, verse 14, all the way to chapter 8, verse 5, He's showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of what all of the priesthood represented in the Old Covenant. That they were many, there was the high priest and then the priests and Levites under him. But now there is one, there is Jesus, who is not only the high priest, but he is the only priest. And that through him, we have access to the Father, no longer needing the mediation of a human priesthood. And that is what he is building on right now as we go through this section or this chunk of the book of Hebrews. But what we have in chapter 6 is kind of a break from that narrative. You know how sometimes you write a letter and you want to insert a thought that maybe doesn't fit with exactly what you're saying, but you need to say it? And so what you do is you make parentheses and you draw a parenthesis. I'm doing this your, my way. I'll do it your way. You draw a parenthesis and then, you know, you write your, your, your sub thought in there and then you close the parenthesis and get back into your context or your purpose or your content of your letter. In chapter six, really, it goes back a little bit into the end of chapter five is, is parenthetic. He wants to say something directly to his audience that isn't necessarily uh, um, a part of the, the building of the truth or the ladder that he's building in all of things. So it's a parenthetic. He's talking to them. He's giving to them an exhortation in this uh, uh, section. Now, the reason why he's giving them this exhortation here is because he got to a point in chapter 5, right around verse 10, where he realized, the author, that he was going to get into something that was way too technical for their level of maturity as Christians. That in order for him to explain to them what it means that Jesus is a superior priest, that he has to reach into something in the Old Testament scriptures that is so technical that it's beyond their, their, their maturity. They're not going to quite understand it. And he, and he gets a little bit spiritually frustrated. It's a sanctified frustration that the author is feeling. And he starts to go in. He says that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then he hears himself say it and he goes, oh no. I am never going to be able to get this through to these people. And so he stops for a minute and he starts to exhort them to grow up and to put their, you know, big boy, big girl, hats on, 
you know, and, and to comprehend and think about the things that he's saying so that they can understand some of the deeper things that he's trying to communicate uh, to them. And so where we left off there at, at um, the end of chapter five was with a reproof. He literally called them babies, milk drinkers, dull, unskillful and undiscerning Christians. It's quite a harsh uh, thing, but he said it in perfect love. You know, the Bible says, speak the truth in love, you know, and so if God is saying it, it's spoken in love. But he said, nevertheless, this is the truth about your spiritual condition. And he links that condition, their spiritual infancy, directly to their relationship with the Bible. And and the point that he makes is that the greater yours and my, or any Christian, uh, relationship with the Bible is, the greater our maturity in Christ and our ability to understand spiritual things is going to be, and vice versa. The contrary is true. The, the less we have a relationship with the Bible, the more inept we're going to be, the more inadequate and immature in our understanding of spiritual things. That the Bible and our understanding of the Bible is what's going to make all the difference in the world concerning that. And again, the reason he's saying it is because he is about to go Angus on these guys. He said, you guys are milk drinkers and you have a hard time with the meat of the word, the more technical, harder to digest things. But I'm about to go Angus on you. We're going to go grass fed, organic, free range, USDA beef as we get into chapters seven and eight here. And I want you to be able to comprehend all of uh, that. It is amazing to me to realize how often the Bible is compared to food. Um, Jesus said that man shall not live by bread alone. Actually, Mo- Moses said it first, and then Jesus uh, quoted it. But man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We know that the manna or the bread that fell from heaven in the Old Testament was a picture or a shadow, a type of the word of God, the words that come from him. Often the Bible is likened unto milk. Second Peter chapter one at the end, it says, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. Hebrews five, the verses we looked at last week, he calls it the meat of the word. And often that analogy between food and the Bible, the two things are linked as food is to us in a physical realm. The words of God in the Bible are to us in the spiritual realm. And so just as food in the natural realm is necessary for us to grow, so also the word of God, the Bible, is necessary for us to grow spiritually. The two things go hand in hand. When a baby is born, tucked inside that baby in the DNA is the program and the code for everything that that baby will be when it is mature, the color of its eyes, the shape of its face, its bone structure, all the way down to the personality. Everything is recorded in that DNA. And the only thing that has to happen to turn that baby into a full-grown human being is that it needs to be fed, needs to be given the proper diet, and everything else will happen naturally. And the same thing is true spiritually. Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, it says, according to his divine power, he has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the knowledge of, of him that has called us. And then it says that he has given us great and precious promises that by these, the promises, the words, we might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world. And so, so basically what the Bible is teaching us is that as we take in the word of God, the spiritual DNA is there. When we're born again, God puts it in us. Everything that we need to be mature, fully functioning Christians is already there, but it needs to be fed. And if we're going to grow up to become that mature Christian, mature follower of Christ, then we need a steady diet of the word of God. We know that in the physical realm, that balance and frequency of what we eat is essential for optimal health. We eat constantly throughout the day. 
We, many of us that understand the way food works in the body, we, we take care of what we eat. We think about the protein content, the carbohydrate content, the fat content. We're careful about vitamins and, you know, even, uh, the, the smaller elements of things. What, what makes up the food that we eat. We pay attention to those things because we want physical health. And the same thing again is true in the spiritual realm. If we're only eating once a week, or if we're only taking in the Word of God even once a day, then the frequency isn't there in order to sustain optimal health. If we're only taking in parts of the Bible, we say, well, I like the New Testament. I like the Psalms. I like the encouraging parts. I love candy and ice cream and all. But but the Old Testament, I really don't have much for it. A study of prophecy is just way beyond my capacity. I hate the book of Revelation. You can't pay me to read it. You know, I'm not going to do it. And, and, and you know, it's funny. There, there's a correlation in everything physical. You ever notice kids don't eat olives and mushrooms? Like, no, I'm not eating that, you know. But the building blocks, you feed them a little at a time. You, you train them up in it. And then after a while, they say, oh, I understand the quality of this. I understand where it fits in the whole thing. I understand that if you put this with this, it works. And why? And, and you, you develop and you grow to the point where you can appreciate the finer things. And as it is in the natural realm, so it is in the spiritual realm. The balance of us constantly taking in all of the Bible is essential for spiritual growth. And the other thing is that in the natural realm, food works in the body whether you like it or not and whether you know it or not or know how it works. When you eat, your body automatically knows what to do with that food. As soon as you put it in, there are enzymes that begin to work on it, begin to break it down. It begins to be organized. Uh, your, your blood begins to separate, your digestive system, all of the various things. And then your brain and your blood work together. You don't know any of this is happening. Most of the time we're sleeping when it happens. And yet all of those things are being brought to where they need to go. There's damage at this part of the body. It needs to be healed and repaired. There's an imbalance here. There's a lack of of, of, of whatever this is in the kidneys. And, and these hormones need to be produced. So something's got to be brought up to the brain. And, you know, all these things are happening involuntarily. And so it also is with the Word of God. As we take in the Word, the milk of the Word, the manna of the Word, the bread of the Word, the meat of the Word, The blood of Christ, the Spirit of God knows how to take those things that are going in and bring them where they need to go in our lives so that we grow and so that we're able then to understand and comprehend all of the things of God, not just the the fundamental elementary things of God. And so the Word of God is so essential to every one of us if we're going to be mature and strong in our faith and understand the things of God. You say, well, how do I go about making that a regular part of my life? How do I let the Word of God optimally develop me so that I'm mature and strong? In Isaiah chapter 28, there's a very insightful passage concerning this. And Isaiah speaks by the Spirit of God, and he says this. He says, whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall he make to understand doctrine or teaching? Some of the more technical things. Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. Meaning that if you really want to understand the things of God, get beyond the elementary fundamental things. And here's how. Verse 10. For precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept. Line upon line. Line upon line. Here a little and there a little. For with stammering lips and another tongue will he speak to this people, to whom he said, This is the rest wherewith you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear. But the word of the Lord was unto them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken, be snared and taken. And the only reason for that is because they didn't want to hear it, like he said up in the verse ahead. If you want to hear it, then you'll have the rest and the refreshing that he spoke about um, back up in verse 12. But here's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, if you want to understand doctrine, if you want to understand the things of God, if you want meat to be satisfying to you and not a frustration, then here's how you develop in your Christian faith to come to that point. Line upon line, 
line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, constantly laying down lines of truth within your life. The word precept literally means point, and it speaks of a stake that's in the ground. A line is a string that's tied to that stake and then stretched out to another point where there's a stake And then the line continues from that stake and it stretches to another stake. And then that line stretches from there to another stake. And you continue to lay points and lines in your heart and in your life until a structure begins to materialize. And you start to understand the picture of what it is. And point by point and line by line, a picture of truth begins to develop in your heart and life. And all of the circumstances through which you interpret the world are then seen through the lens of that body of truth. And God's word begins to grow you up and you become mature in your faith. But if you are a Christian that says church is good enough, what I get on the radio is good enough, what I read in the devotional once daily is good enough, I'm telling you, you're not going to have all that God has for you. Become people of the word. Take the word of God in constantly. Love the Bible and you will love your life. I can promise you that. Love the word. And that is what the heart of the Hebrew writer is, as he's talking to these Christians here, and he's saying, listen, you guys need to grow up in your faith and be mature. You say, how do I know whether or not I'm a meat eater or not? Here's the answer. Do you understand Hebrews? How well are you going to do as we get into chapter 6, 7, and 8 in understanding these very technical Things that the author is going to bring up. Is it too tedious? And you say, ah, come back when he gets to Peter, Corinthians or something. You know, it's easier. Listen, no, don't do that. Understand the meat of the word of God. And so he's exhorting them now to grow. Get past the fundamentals. That's where he left off in the first three verses of chapter 6, saying, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms and laying on of hands and resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Let's get beyond the elementary things. We're not going to forget those things. They're not unimportant, but we're going to move forward from them. It's not going to be the basis of our whole Christian life. And now he proceeds from there as we come into uh, verse 4, after calling them to maturity. And now he's going to give to them another warning against returning to the old life. A warning against returning from Christ. Now, what's remarkable about this is that this is the sixth time now in the book of Hebrews that he has issued this warning. He's given the same warning in chapter 2, verse 3, and chapter 3, verse 6, In chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, in chapter 4, verse 1, in chapter 4, verse 11, and now again in chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, with the strongest language that he has used yet. It is the very purpose for the book of Hebrews, this very warning that he is about to give a puzzling and and, and, and an extremely intriguing section of scripture. So let's look at the warning that he gives in verse 4. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and brings forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receives blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. And so he gives this incredibly uh, uh, very pointed warning here to these Hebrew Christians faced with the temptation of turning back from Christ and going into the old system. And he gives them uh, uh, um, uh, a stern ultimatum. Now, the question here, first of all, is who is he talking to in this whole thing? And I see in, in absolute no uncertain terms at all that he is talking 
to someone who was saved or is saved who has now turned their back on Christ. And he makes that clear in five uh, very, very clear terms. He says that these people, up in verse 4, were once enlightened, meaning that the lights went on. They understood uh, what it was that they were giving their lives to. They, they were able to clearly evaluate the truth of God, and they were enlightened concerning this truth. Secondarily, he says that they have tasted of the heavenly gift. Now, in order to taste of something, it has to get inside. You can smell something on the outside, but in order to taste it, it's got to get in. And so the gift of God, which is salvation through Jesus Christ, was tasted by them. It got into their life. The third thing, it says that they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. The only way a person can be made a partaker of the Holy Ghost is if they've been cleansed. Because the Holy Spirit does not, as light, share space with dark. He does not come into something that hasn't first been cleansed by the blood of Christ. So for someone to be a partaker of the Holy Ghost means that they were cleansed by the blood of Christ. Fourthly, it says in verse 5 that they have tasted the good word of God, meaning that the word has come to life within them. We all know what that's like. We know what it was like to hear Bible stories and things before we were saved. And then we knew what it was like to taste it once we had the capacity to taste it once the Spirit of God lived inside of us. And then finally, he says that they've te- they have uh, experienced the powers of the world to come. So in no uncertain terms, no matter how you try to bend this or, or you know cast an angle on it, Who he's talking to here is someone who was once saved, but that now has turned their back on the Lord Jesus Christ. He says that if they shall fall away in verse six, and and what that means is that this person has become apostate, that they have turned their back on Christ. And that's who he's talking about here. He's talking about someone who is apostate, who's turned away from Jesus Christ. So the second question is, now that we know who he's talking to, uh, who is the apostate? What is an apostate? What does an apostate look like? That's the big question in all of this. Well, the word that he uses there to describe this person in verse uh, um, six is the words fall away. And what the word literally means in the Greek language or translates to is the word is parapito. And you don't have to remember that, but you might remember the para part, which is alongside. And then pito is to fall from. And so parapito means to fall from alongside of. And the reason why that's significant is because when Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would come and he would come into our lives, he called him the helper. And the word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit as the helper was the word paraclete. Para, again, alongside, but clete, it means help. One who comes alongside to help, the paraclete. And so what he's saying here for someone who's fallen away or parapito is that they have severed the ties with the Holy Ghost that was given to them at the beginning that they cut off that, that union that they had with Christ so that they are no longer walking with them. And so he's talking about someone who has severed ties with the Holy Ghost. He's also talking about someone, as he says there in verse 6, about someone who has crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him then to an open shame. And so not only someone who has severed ties with the Holy Ghost, but someone also who has alienated themselves. And I want you to notice the common denominator in all of these things is that the, the person that is making the, 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 um, the, the, the break or the severing the ties is the individual. It's not the spirit that's doing it. It's that person. They have cut off ties with him. They have crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and, ma- and moved him to an open shame. And so they, they've crucified themselves to the Son of God. They've said, we don't want him in our life anymore. He no longer is the means of our salvation, though once maybe we did make a profession of faith in him. We no longer have an interest in him. We don't want him ruling in our lives. We don't want Jesus a part of things. We're not going to submit to his word or his ways. We're going a totally different direction. Jesus, you're not invited. That's the mindset. I have crucified myself 
to you. We are cut off. There is no longer a connection or a tie between us. So the apostate is the one who has cut off that tie and then they remain in that condition until the day that they die. And the reason why that's part of it is because Jesus said this. He said that there is only one unpardonable sin, only one, that all manner of sin and evil will be forgiven to the sons of men, but there is only one sin that will not, and that is the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost. And what that means is the resistance of his knocking upon the life, trying to get in, trying to attach, trying to become the paraclete. And to resist that call in that knock until a person dies is to disqualify themselves from his salvation. Once a person passes from this life apart from Christ, they no longer can be saved. Once they, once they see, uh, as they're seen. It can't, can't happen. And so, an apostate person is someone who has turned their back on Christ, and then they've abode or remained in that condition all the way up until the day that they died. And they, uh, they, they've, they've done that. They've made that decision. The apostate person is also one, not only who's fallen away, not only one who's crucified to themselves the Son of God, but also one who it says there at the end of verse, um, Six, it says that they have put him to an open shame. When, when Jesus went to the cross, the Bible tells us that he endured the shame. It says that he did it for the joy that was set before him, the cross. The joy was you and I, that we would be redeemed. But it says that he despised the shame. And the shame of the cross was that the sins of the world, the sins of every human being that ever lived, were being placed upon him on the cross. He was enduring the penalty and the wrath for all of man's sin, all of the filth and the defilement of it, the smell and the stain, all of that was being laid upon him blow by blow. And it says that he was glad to do it because of the love he had for us, but that he despised the shame. But it wasn't an open shame. It was a closed shame. In what sense? In the sense that when Jesus was on the cross, he uttered the words and he said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. They're ignorant concerning what is taking place here. The transaction of the sin that's being laid upon me in their place. It was, it was hidden from them. They didn't understand it. But the apostate person is in a completely different position than the one who was there that day. The apostate person is putting him to open shame because they know exactly what they're doing. They have already been enlightened. They have tasted the good word of God. They understand the presence of the Holy Spirit and what it costs for that to be in their lives. And for that person who knows those things, for that person to then say, I no longer want Jesus as a part of my life because I want to go my own way. They have despised his cross and they have put him to an open shame because they've sinned against light. And so that person is an apostate person. And so they've severed ties with the Holy Ghost. They've crucified themselves to the Son of God and they have put him to an open shame, turning from him in full knowledge of what they are doing. And then the fourth aspect of what makes someone an apostate is given to us in verse uh, 8. And that is the fruit that apostasy brings out in the life of the apostate person. He says, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh to cursing whose end is to be burned. And that is that once a person rejects the presence of Christ within their life, then their life is quickly going to begin to carry and bear the marks of not having Christ within their life. And that is that there will be nothing but cursing that will come into and then flow out of that life. Uh, in contrast, of course, to what is there in verse 7, which is uh, fruitfulness and blessing that's from God. And so uh, four elements that make up the apostate person. Now, the next question is who isn't then the apostate person? If the apostate is the one who has severed ties with Christ, then who isn't he talking about here when he talks about this group of people? And the answer is he's not talking about the backslider. The backslider is someone who is walking with Christ 
And then for a season, maybe because of their own foolishness, well, it's always foolish to backslide, so yes, that's that's always true, you know. But because of conditions or circumstances or things that they've done, they have slipped back into things that they should no longer have as a part of their life. They are backslidden. Jeremiah talks about the backslider. That is actually a biblical term. But the difference between a backslider and someone who is apostate is that a backslider is still facing forward. The backslider hasn't turned around. They're not a back, you know, walker, a back turner. They're a backslider, meaning they're, they're moving in a direction. They're facing a certain way, but they've slipped and they're sliding backwards. They're, they're going regressive. They're not moving the direction they want to be moving with their life, but they're aimed in the direction that they want to go with their life. And their eyes and their heart is still towards God, even though the weakness of the, the, um, the sins of their life has overcome them in that season. They want to be right, but they've given in to their weakness. We see the person of David in the Old Testament. And we see that God can testify concerning David's life that David walked before him with a perfect heart. David, in all of his sin, in his lying, in his murder, in his adultery, in everything that David did, in all of the filth that it caused within his life and the lives of those around him, God would look at David and he would say, he was never an apostate. He sinned, but he sinned before me. And he always came back to me. His heart was in the right place. Samson was a backslider, but he was not an apostate. Samson screwed up at every single juncture of his life. He did not make one right decision, not one. Every opportunity he had to choose what was right versus what was wrong, he chose what was wrong. And he is the testimony of a wasted life, but he was not an apostate. At the end of his life, he said, God, let me feel your Holy Spirit one more time. And it says that the dead that he slew in his death were more than they which he slew in his life. It's sad because he was more fruitful by dying than he was by living. But he was not an apostate. He was a backslider. There was a man in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, a Christian man who was having an affair with his mother-in-law. And Paul said, you need to kick that man out of the church and not let that defilement be among you. But that man was a backslider. He was not an apostate. Because he repented of his sin. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote to the church and he said, okay, guys, relax now, let him back in. He has gotten right with God. He wasn't apostate. He was backslidden. So the sinning brother, the sinning sister is not the apostate one. Because I am overtaken in a fault or because I fall into something that I have no business as a Christian being a part of, that does not make me apostate. It makes me a backslider. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the Apostle Paul wrote, and he said, If any man or woman be overtaken in a fault, then you which are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of meekness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. So what the writer of Hebrews is talking to here is not the person who's struggling with their sin, who's hoping that God's going to give them victory, but that doesn't have the strength where they are right now, and thus they find themselves being overcome by their weaknesses. That's not who he's talking to. He is talking to a person who has deliberately, intentionally made the declaration with their mouth and with their life that they no longer want a part in Christ. They want him to leave them alone, and they want to live the rest of their lives apart from him. That's the apostate person, and that's who he's talking to there uh, in that. And it brings up the question uh, that many would have and many have had concerning this passage. Is it possible for a man or a woman to lose their salvation? That's a great argument that's been going on in the church for as long as the church has existed. Is there such thing as eternal security or can I, in fact, lose my salvation? And my answer to that question, and you can argue with me if you want to, but I won't, I won't engage in the argument, is no. You cannot lose your salvation, but you can leave your salvation. I believe that the Bible, this passage, and the very purpose and essence of the book of Hebrews is a warning against the real possibility that it is for me to leave my salvation. Now, the overwhelming tone of the New Testament is that I am secure in Jesus Christ. 
I mean, you, there is scripture after scripture after scripture that God wants us to be confident and secure in his love for us. That we are kept by the power of God through faith that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus said that all that the Father gives to me will come to me and no one will be able to pluck them out of my hand. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. God gave us our salvation. God keeps us in this salvation and God perfects this salvation while we relate to and walk with him. That is the overwhelming tone. But there are passages like the one that we just read in Hebrews and there are several in Hebrews. And there's one in Second Peter. The book of Jude alludes to it. There are things that God says to us that will not allow us as Christians to say there is nothing that can happen that will pull me out of that. And that's a good thing. God gives us these things so that we might not lose the fear of God, which is an essential part of our walk with him. Passages like this keep us in the fear of God. I know that as a new Christian, I hated these passages. You know why? Because I would have a terrible week or a terrible day in, in the things of God. I would just be stumbling all over the place. And I would make a decision that I need to get back to God. And I would just say, I need to, I need to get back to God. I need, to, I need God. And I would take my Bible and I'd go like this. And guess where it would open? Hebrews chapter 6. And I would read, It is impossible for those who are once enlightened, if they shall fall away. And I'll go, No, God, no, please, I don't want to fall away from you. Forgive me. You know? And then it would happen again. And, and, and you know what? It, it filled me with a fear and it filled me with a respect and a reverence for God. But what it taught me, it taught me that I cannot afford as a Christian walking in this narrow path to stray from God to a point where I can't see that light. I do not have confidence in his salvation if I walk away from him. And things like this served me well as a new Christian that I might not take my eyes off of him, though I was weak, though I had stumbled, though I would stumble in all of this. Do you realize it is not easy to be an apostate? I mean, do you know what you would have to go through in order to actually be an apostate person, someone who tasted the heavenly gift, was enlightened, tasted the word of God, the powers of the world come, and to actually be cut off from Jesus Christ, that is not an easy thing to do. You probably would have an easier time winning a gold medal at the Olympics than you would uh, being that person. Why? Here's why. Because the Bible tells us concerning our Savior that his heart towards us is that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he is the shepherd that leaves the 90 and 9 and that comes and finds and seeks out the lost sheep. And he will, like a woman who lost a valuable coin, sweep the house clean, move every piece of furniture and remove every obstacle that he might find and return that lost thing to him again. And if you can outrun that, then you are one stubborn person. You could win a gold medal at the Olympics because you have the tenacity uh, to do that. If you can resist that calling of the shepherd. Hosea chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Hosea speaking by the word of God. He says, for their mother, speaking of Israel that had turned from God, apostasy. Her mother has played the harlot. She has conceived them Or she that conceived them has done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, he says, I will hedge up your way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And God is faithful in the life of a straying brother or a straying sister to not let their plans prosper. And if you've ever tried to walk independently of God and outside of his will, then you know exactly what that means. Every way you turn, it is failure, it is misery. You try to go through a door and you find that you open the door and there's a wall behind it, it's built up. And that is God not letting your plans to try to live independently of him prosper. And if you can persist and break through that wall and continue, and call, then you can do that. He's not going to force you. He will not violate your free will. But if you do that, you are one stubborn individual. It is not easy to be an apostate person. You could go on and read uh, more of Hosea and see the heart of God towards the backslider. His will and desire is always to save. 
He did not die on a cross and come into the world and endure everything that he endured because he delights in casting people off from him. He doesn't do that. That's not his heart. But if I think that I can turn my back on Christ and walk independently of him and go back to my old life and that I don't need him anymore and that I'm secure because somebody said once saved, always saved, then I'm deceiving myself. I am not secure in that place if I have turned my back on him in it. And it's what the author of Hebrews uh, wants us to understand in, in all of these things. I believe in the days that we're living in, it's especially important that we're on guard against this. And the reason why in these days it's that important is because of the overwhelming uh, number of scriptures that warn about apostasy in the last days. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 24, that great end times chapter, twice in that chapter he warned against apostasy. He said that because iniquity will abound, brother will betray brother unto death and the love of many will wax cold, but he that endures to the end will be saved. It's a very clear warning against apostasy. A little bit later in the same chapter, Jesus again gives a warning. He says, but if that servant, that's you and me, shall say in his heart that the Lord delays his coming and he shall begin to beat his fellow servants and eat and to drink with the drunk, he says, then, the, then his Lord will come in a day when, he, when he's not looking for him and he will cut him in sunder and give him his portion with the hypocrites or with the unbelievers. It's a warning against apostasy in the last days. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the Apostle Paul talking to the Thessalonian church about the coming of Christ. He says, For that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first. That there will be many that will turn their back on Jesus Christ in the last days, having made a profession of faith, but that will cut off and sever those ties. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul wrote, and he said, For the days will come, when many, in the last days, many shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And then he describes what that will look like. And so the New Testament gives us much warning about the days that we're living in and about the apostasy that will come upon the world. And thus we must guard our hearts and not lose sight of the light in a false confidence, thinking that we can uh, walk outside of him or away from him, uh, and think that we're safe there. And so he gives to us that warning. Now, moving on, lighter things. We can't finish there. <laughs> he says, verse 9, he says, But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things which accompany salvation, though we thus speak. You need this warning because of the temptations that you're facing to fall away. But we're persuaded that this isn't going to be the destiny for any one of you. We're persuaded of better things. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have showed toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. That is, that God is, is, is with you in the service that you're doing unto him and unto his people. And he says in verse 11 that we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Now, the full assurance of hope that he mentions there in verse 11, you could circle all of those words with one big circle and somewhere close by it, write the word faith. Because that's the definition of faith. The full assurance of hope. That is, that I am fully assured that my salvation is completed in Christ and therefore there's no place else for me to turn. And I believe that. And therefore I have faith in what Christ has done for me. And so he's exhorting them. He's saying, show diligence to hope in faith until the end. And here's how, verse 12 that you be not slothful, don't be lazy, lackadaisical, or flippant concerning this salvation, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. In other words, find an example of someone who has done this and then latch on to that example and be an imitator of their lives. And then he gives us a case study in verse 13. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham... 
Because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. And so he turns now the focus back to the man Abraham. And here's where we're going to finish our study tonight as we look just at these closing verses of chapter um, 6. But what he is pointing to us here is the superior promise that we have in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament carried a promise with it. And the promise of the Old Testament was that if you keep the law, then you will obtain salvation. That was the promise. And the people heard that and they were like, we're good with that. Ten Commandments. We can do that. We'll do it. And God said, are you sure? Because here's the conditions of that. It's Leviticus 18, verse 5. He says, in Leviticus 18, verse 5, he says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments, which if a man do, he shall live in them, for I am the Lord. Meaning, here's the terms. You will be saved if you keep the law, but you must live in that law. Meaning, you stumble once, you're done. You got to keep it perfectly. Those were the conditions of the promise of the old covenant. Well, now he's going to contrast that promise with the promise that brings, that Jesus brings into our lives and show us that it's a superior promise. And he uses Abraham as an example. He says that when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he, Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men, verily, swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So what he's saying here concerning God's interaction with Abraham is that God gave Abraham a promise. He swore to him. And because there was nothing greater than God that God could put his hand on and say, I swear by the Bible or whatever else, it says that he swore by himself because there's nothing higher than him. And so God gave a promise to Abraham in his word. And the reference to this this that he's bringing here is from Genesis chapter 15. And it's an incredible interaction that took place between Abraham and God. In Genesis chapter 15, Abraham was returning from the slaughter of the kings. And he had, at that time, what we would call stupid wealth. He had just won a war with his 318 servants and pulled back all the spoils from from it. And he was just filthy, filthy loaded. And as he was coming back, the Lord met him. And the Lord said to Abraham there, he said, Abraham, don't be afraid. He said, I'm your shield and I am your exceeding great reward. And Abraham, frustrated at this stage of his life because he didn't have a son yet, looked up at God and he said, God, I know, but what are you going to give me seeing that I go childless and the heir of my house is this servant, this Eliezer of Damascus? Abraham wanted a son. He wanted an heir. He wanted the promise of God to be fulfilled. And God said, Abraham, come over here in the night sky. I want to show you something. And he said, one that's born in your house is not going to be your servant, but someone who comes from your loins is going to be your heir. And he says, come here. He says, look up. Count the stars. If you're able to number the stars, then you'll be able to number the descendants that you're going to have that are going to come as the fruit of your own body. Now, that was the promise that God gave to Abraham. The word of promise is that he would have a son that would be an heir and that he would be the father of multitudes of nations. That was the promise. But God then said, you know what? Not only am I going to give you my word, which it tells us there that Abraham believed it and it was counted to him for righteousness. But then God said, I'm going to confirm it with an oath. And so God said, Abraham, what I want you to do is I want you to take a young heifer. I want you to take a she-goat. I want you to take a ram, all three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And I want you to cut them in half and then spread them out. Make a passageway between the pieces. You know what God was saying to Abraham there? He was saying, Abraham, we're going we're gonna to cut covenant. In those days, when two people would make an agreement together, if they wanted it to be contractual and binding, they would cut covenant. Meaning they would take a heifer or a bull or a lamb and they would cut it in half and they would put one half on the left and one half on the right. Then they would link arm in arm, the two people making the agreement, 
and they would walk back and forth between the pieces that were halved aside the path. And while they walked between the pieces, each person would declare their end of the deal. I promise that I will give my land to this person for this sum. And then that person would say, I promise to give this person this sum for this land. And what they were doing is they were entering into a contract wherein the terms were that if I break my side of the deal, then may what happened to these animals happen to me and you. Or me, if I'm the one that, that broke my side of the deal. It was called cutting covenant. And what God is saying to Abraham here, he's saying, Abraham, I'm going to make an oath to you. We're going to cut covenant. And so I want you to cut these animals in pieces and lay them on the side and then wait for me. I'm going to walk with you between these pieces. And it says that Abraham waited and all the way up until midnight when the, when the ravens came, he would shoo the ravens off and he wouldn't let them get at the meat, you know, and the whole thing. But it says around midnight, it says Abraham grew sleepy. And it says he fell asleep and a horror of great darkness fell upon Abraham. And it says that while he was sleeping, listen, while he was sleeping, a burning and a shining lamp descended and passed between those pieces. And God declared, you can read it, Genesis chapter 15, the terms of the covenant. He says, surely blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply you. Your descendants will be slaves in a a nation that is not theirs for 400 years. And then after that, that nation that they shall serve, I will judge. You know, and he gives them all the terms of it. And he says, and I will give them this land, the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the, you know, the Jebusites. And, you know, I'm going to give to you and to your descendants all of this land. And then God ascended up into heaven. What's the point? Here's the point. How many people walked between those pieces? One. Abraham tried with everything he had to maintain the coming of that promise. And when he could no longer endure, he fell asleep and darkness came over him. But God passed between the pieces by himself. In other words, this is a one-sided deal. I'm going to do it. I made the promise I'm going to perform it. I'm going to bring it to completion. It's me and not you. You say, what does that have to do with us? The writer answers the question in verse 17. He says, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, that's you and me, the immutability, that means the unchangeableness of his counsel He confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, and here are the two immutable, unchangeable things. One is the word of promise that God has given that you will be saved by faith or by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the word. Then the other immutable thing is the oath, and the oath came through the cross. How many people went to the cross? One. Were you there? No. Did you go? No. God did it. He spoke it, and then he performed it. Willing more abundantly to show the heirs of salvation the mutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath, by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. Here's what the result is that we might have a strong consolation, confidence, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope that is set before us. In other words, the word of Christ, the cross of Christ, the grace of God that comes through the promise that he's given us in Christ gives to us a strong hope and a strong confidence wherein where we have turned our back on the world and in our former life and we have set our face towards him, that we have that hope set before us. And that hope, verse 19, it says that that hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Now, what is an anchor? An anchor is something that holds a ship in place and keeps it from moving away. Now, what's amazing here is that an anchor is only as good as what it's hanging on to, right? I mean, if you've got a hang, anchor that's hanging on, hanging on to nothing, then how, what good is that anchor? 
But what he says here is that we have the hope as an anchor. The question is, what is that hope anchored to? You know what the answer is? It's Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. I hope it goes up on the screen because I don't want to have it good. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Substance is substrate, structure. It's what is the anchor is holding on to. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. So if hope is the anchor that keeps us, what is that anchor holding to but faith? And here's the exhortation that the Hebrew writer is giving to us tonight. Don't turn your back on your faith in Christ. It is all you need and it is all you have. And what that hope and anchor give to you or bring to you is grace. It's the grace of God. It's a superior promise. It's God's forgiveness and God's riches at Christ's expense. And to turn our backs on it would be absolute folly and foolishness. It's an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast, which enters into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's going to get into Melchizedek in chapter 7. Um, as he now, you know, I mean, this was meaty enough, right? I, I don't think that there is a, a writer in the Bible or maybe even a, a person living in the days when these things were written that had a better knowledge and handle on the, on the Bible and the scriptures than the writer of Hebrews, right? You all had meat tonight. I hope you know that. Some of you are like, I know I'm still trying to chew and I can't, I can't land this one. This is like the shoulder or the shin bone or something. Grace. Musicians can come. Not only are we saved by grace, but we're kept by grace. We're sustained by grace. Every part of our lives is grace. I woke up early this morning, which I don't want you to think I'm spiritual. That's just kind of normal for me. I'm a morning riser. And I went outside real early. And it was way dark still and... You know, there was kind of that um, waning gibbons moon, like casting some shadows around, and it's warm this morning, so there's every insect in the world singing their song out, and I swear that is more beautiful than the, the finest instrument of man to hear that and just know that that is God's song, you know. And as I walked this morning, I was troubled. I was thinking about some foolish mistakes that I've made in the past week. I've missed a couple of appointments, and... I've let some people down and, um, you know, I have a, I have a son who is not easy to raise. He drained my well yesterday. <laughs> he's only three. I know he's got room for all of this, you know, not trying to tell you who he is or anything, you know, he might be here tonight in the back sitting on someone's lap right now. But I was just discouraged this morning while I was walking, just on, just vulnerable, honest. I was discouraged. And um, just thinking about all of the various things that you try to keep up in a life. I mean, we all have a job. We all have uh, people. We have a marriage. We have children. We have responsibilities. We have relationships. We have uh, a calendar that is packed with things. We're, we're all busy. And sometimes you can just get like, God, I'm, I'm failing in everything. Like every, I get an F in every single one of these categories. It's just F, 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 you know, all the way down the list. And and, 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 and I don't want to say that the Lord spoke to me because that would just sound way too spiritual and I don't want to do that. But that this is what came to me and it probably was the Lord speaking to me. And it was this, is that we have to live by grace. We're not just saved by faith. And by that I mean this, is that we are saved by grace because we know that we cannot earn our salvation. Right? Like if we try to save ourselves by our diligent working, it's never enough. I mean, if we kept the law, there's always more to do. Once we're keeping the laws we think we should keep, then we realize there's more that we have to keep. And, and you're soon, you get an F. I fail. I can't save myself. 
And so we realize I'm saved by grace because I absolutely cannot save myself. So what does it mean then to live by grace? Listen, you have a marriage, you need to be married by grace. If you're a parent, you need to be a parent by grace. If you have a job, relationships to maintain, do it by grace. Meaning this, is that you do the absolute best that you can with the resources that God has given you and you entrust the outcomes to his grace. Because if you could be the perfect parent and it was dependent upon your parenting to see your kids raised up the right way, you would do something to ruin it sometime in the future. Or it wouldn't work. And you would say, But by grace, God can redeem every one of our mistakes and trumpet for his good and for his purpose. In our marriages, in our work, in our career. What did you carry in here tonight? Let me ask you this. Can you cast it upon the grace of God? Because you have the privilege. He alone walks between the pieces. It is him that carries us. It is he that has made us and not we ourselves. He is our father. We are the clay. He is the shepherd. We are the sheep. And the shepherd is never dependent upon the IQ of the sheep. He knows how to get us to where we need to go. We are free to live by grace. Father, we thank you tonight for this promise that we have in Jesus. And I pray that tonight, Lord, we'd be brought very close. That not one of us would turn aside. That we wouldn't drop anything of what you've given to us. We entrust ourselves to you. We thank you for this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.